Welcome to Coin DMZ. I'm Ken Rakowski in Las Vegas, Nevada, and joining me from Santa Monica, California, or somewhere around there, is Big Billy William Quigley. Haven't talked in a while. We haven't done this in the last time, William. The last time we did a recording like this on Coin DMZ was August 11th of 2019. You know what's crazy about that? That was the low from a sentiment standpoint uh, regarding crypto uh, in something I, I I always look at, which is the fear and greed index. Right. Uh, the lowest it's ever been on a scale of one to 100, 100 being euphoric and one being, you know, just totally depressed was a five and it hit five in August 2019. Okay. So just to give you an idea what Bitcoin was, and by the way, right now we're looking at November 16th, November 16th, 2022 is when this show is being recorded. I want to give you an idea. Bitcoin today, uh, we're looking at $16,863. Okay. 16,000 back then, William, <laughs> it was around, no, 10,000 in August. Yes. 10,000 August 19th. 19 or 2019 uh its high was ten thousand three hundred dollars and its low was nine thousand eight hundred thirty one dollars uh if you look at today not much of a massive growth because when we went up to uh, yeah 70 percent but of wow. course it went up it went up uh like 600 <laughs> percent and then because of a lot of uh uh things it it uh it went back to, so uh, let's right let's kind of like look at the last three years since we kind of reconnecting on this. The biggest stories probably have happened in the last year when it comes to crypto. I mean, the biggest negative stories have happened. Let's yeah, Terra, the last, Terra Luna. Six months. Terra Luna, of course, which was a big one, but FTX, which everybody and i've noticed now so many people that were supporting it loving it you gotta do it the celebrities behind it they are backtracking like crazy right now aren't they yeah that always happens right you uh during periods of euphoria uh there really is no space in the uh kind of the the public square for uh questions yeah never is no one wants to hear them uh, you know, you have all of the uh, influencers and shills promoting whatever it is they are trying to sell. And um, obviously, uh, SBF made a made a uh, a short but very, very spectacular career out of taking advantage of that. FTX, FTX, right? Up and down. The celebrities are are big names and also i mean mr Wonder, wonderful i'm not sure if you know he who he is i don't shark tank shark tank he's the one who actually recently just got a a, a uae passport um he was a big saying hey, i am with this because ftx has incredible people behind it that are watching what's going on people that are high in the government nothing is going to ever happen to this it seems like no one really did any due diligence on, on this company the thing that, uh, so I've been an investor for a long time, of course, yeah. I've also built a lot of things in, uh, in, in crypto. Uh, the, the, so when you invest in something, uh, you as an investor, you 
are not part of the management team. You're not on the board. You're not the auditors. So if the company runs into trouble or goes bankrupt, um, you know, you can't really, maybe you should have done better analysis, but uh, you weren't part of the problem, generally speaking. So initially there was a lot of criticism about the investors in FTX who invested uh, $2 billion, roughly $2 billion, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't ever look at that deal, so I didn't know a lot about it. I heard a lot of criticism lobbed by the investors, and I thought, well, you know, uh, uh, you know their job is not to make sure everyone else is doing okay. They just look at what risk they can handle, and they put their money in. But here's where I would qualify that. Um, it has become a practice in Silicon Valley uh, for this unholy alliance between the venture capitalists and the media. Mm-hmm. And the VCs go and find entrepreneurs, often young and uh, inexperienced. They put some money behind them and then they become shills. They almost become like social media influencers and they work with the media and they get the media to write breathless stories about these companies or uh, often to build up the the entrepreneur as some um, you know the next Steve Jobs or the next Warren Buffett and uh, when they do that I mean they are they are promoting something and they are very aware that they're using their credibility and their brand as sophisticated investors to give people comfort that hey you should check this out Mm. and that is what happened with FTX Uh, not all but some of the investors made it a point to advertise or to get articles written about their involvement in the project as a stamp of like validity and the press took that loved it because lots of people want to read about and are interested in companies that have received a lot of venture capital they they assume the venture capitalists did all of their diligence so this must be a safe place for me to either park my money as a customer or to invest as well and so the thing is ftx was primarily a crypto derivative exchange it was run by a guy who had a very short career right because he was well when he started it he was like 26 27 his his team if you will were equally inexperienced shockingly inexperienced Mm -hmm. after the fact i learned that People say there wasn't a board. There was a board, but there was no outside board. It was uh, SBF and two other people, all insiders. Then you had no CFO in the company. So that one, by the way, VCs continue to make this mistake because a lot of venture capitalists, this may be a surprise to people, uh, have no financial experience. VCs don't. Lots of venture capitalists have no financial experience. That actually surprises me. Lots of venture capitalists don't know what a balance sheet is. They're product people, or God forbid, they worked, they were W-2s working in some big company and maybe on a product, and then they get hired as a venture capitalist. You see, you could be even an executive vice president at a very big company running a division, and you would have no experience managing a balance sheet because in big corporations, unless you're the CEO, 
you really don't touch the cash. You don't know anything about cash management or balance sheet stuff. That's run by the Treasury Department and it's invisible to you. Mm -hmm. So who learns about balance sheets and cash flows? Entrepreneurs. So if you were an entrepreneur, you've started a few companies, you've grown that business. At some point, you've probably had that oh shit moment where you're making money, but your cash is going down. Right. And that's, that causes great concern, but you learn to be very- That's an very important moment. Wary of it, right? Yeah. Well, a balance sheet of a crypto derivatives firm that has 130 plus uh, entities and subsidiaries. People need to understand that. So when FTX hard to understand when FTX went bankrupt, believe, I do not believe that uh, the venture capitalists did any significant diligence on the corporate structure or the intercompany okay. loans, intercompany transfers. I just don't believe it. William Quigley and I are looking at what's going on specifically right now with FTX, and we're talking about some other things too. But William, when you look at that entity being FTX, you're right. There was 134 other companies that went bankrupt exactly at the same time. Bam. So when you think about a, a corporation, there's a lot of, you, 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 there's paperwork, of course, but to manage a corporation, it might sound easy, but theoretically it shouldn't be. You should, you treat it like a, a child like a, a kid, you know, you have to make sure you, you file the right papers, make sure you have a board, make sure you have all these things. 134 companies from a group of what, was there 10 people inside FTX? It was a small group. I mean, I think they had several hundred employees, but it seems like- the manageable level. The, yeah, at the senior level, it seems like it was very small, maybe a dozen, yeah. maybe- Yeah, they were all living in the same place in the Bahamas. But more importantly now, I mean, it's of course, again, 2020 hindsight, right? But when I'm I'm looking at the first thing I looked because I used to be a CFO and a, and I was a, a a public accountant who audited failed savings and loans, uh, failed financial institutions. That's how I began my career. So for me, I wanted to know, wow, this thing got in financial distress. Who was looking out for the uh, the internal controls, the risk management procedures? Normally, that would be a treasurer and a CFO and an office around them and a chief compliance officer, a chief risk officer. I saw that the chief risk officer, uh, who, by the way, should always have wrinkles and gray hair. If you know nothing else, your chief risk officer should have wrinkles and gray hair. They should have experienced a lot, right? Right. So this was a very young woman who I read had two years of experience at an investment bank where, I mean, that's just woefully inadequate experience for what these guys were doing. Um, and uh, I, the compliance team, I assume, had to be uh, just understaffed, undertrained, because the things that we now hear were being done. I mean, the, it's a sacred thing when you manage people's money. And it is a, it is a mortal sin to take trust account assets, so customer assets, and hypothecate uh, to, to, to take those and, and to lend them out in order to get cash to do something with the company. You are never supposed to touch company or customer assets. Never, there needs to be never. The, strict, the strict separation between the customer assets and the company assets. So how the investors who put $2 billion into this business, how they didn't see when they asked to see uh, the risk 
management procedures and the diligence around how you would comply, all the intercompany uh, transactions, which you would want to understand so you could figure out how do these guys actually make money? I, I wasn't there and I haven't looked at what diligence was done, but I'm, I'm uh, suspicious that uh, satisfactory diligence was done to actually get comfortable that FTX was doing what it was supposed to be doing. And then when you, when you then say those investors did that and some of them went out and promoted FTX as a great place, that's where I think they, uh, uh, well, they certainly have regrets for doing that now. But by the but, way, I, I lost money in FTX. I also lost money in Celsius. I mean, it's, it's gone. Now, my question- As a customer. As a customer. Yeah. As a, I was an investor. I mean, I, have, I had money in there. I felt, I mean, Celsius to me was a, 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 a great platform when I, I started putting money in there two years ago. Uh, I lost everything in Celsius and I lost everything in FTX. Question is, can I, can I write that off? Of course. Yeah. 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 I can't what log into both platforms to get a balance of anything. So I just go back to my most recent, um, most recent emails. Cause that's how I got updates. And that's what I have to use. But just, just think about that. I mean, two platforms. I mean, I know you, you're a lot smarter than that. You probably keep everything in cold storage. You actually wear, you, most people don't know this. William Quigley wears USB uh, drives on him everywhere. So he's got probably about $20 billion in USBs in Here Bitcoin. Is. Yeah. Uh, so Ken, uh, when people ask me, why am I so against uh, keeping crypto on exchanges? Uh, the caveat, of course, is you must use exchanges. Now, you could use decentralized ones, but let's right. just say if you want to acquire or sell, you've got to do it through some mechanism. So it's right. typically an exchange. So, you know, you, you can't ever completely shield yourself from the counterparty risk of using exchanges. But as somebody said multiple times, it might have been Eric Voorhees, uh, think of an exchange like a brothel. You get in, you do your business, and you leave. Don't stick around. So that's the way to think about exchanges because you don't know how they're internally managing your funds. And once you give them your funds, those are all commingled. And, and up until now, we've had very poor visibility into whether there is adequate proof of reserves for the coins that these exchanges have had. I do think we'll see some self-policing now where exchanges will oh, yeah. because they need to, they're worried that customers have lost faith. They'll start to do more reporting. Um, I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that we move more towards decentralized exchanges. Um, there's always an impulse in these situations always. to um, go to the politicians and say, let's do something. and. In my experience, that's never led to a good outcome. Not at all. Because in this rush to, quote, do something, what a lot of time happens is no rules are made from scratch. What the politicians do is they look for rules that another industry uses that are very similar, and they try to wrap those like a straitjacket around the current industry that's running into problems. And of course, there's multiple issues with that, one of which is it's a different set of issues and conditions than those rules that were developed for the last industry that had problems. 
And of course, we always find that uh, rules made for one industry um, eventually get hijacked by the leaders of that industry to bar uh, new entrants from coming in. And so what I would like to not see here is for um, the U.S. banking industry to go, which is a very strong lobby, to go to Congress and say, look what's going on in the crypto industry. You need to start regulating them like you regulate us. Ah, so that means the U.S. banking industry is being told, hey, see this, this game here? Uh, all the rules of how that game is played, how the referees work, uh, what the regulation gear is required. You guys already have all that and you're suited up, ready to go. So crypto will now have those rules, which will make it very hard for existing or new crypto people to come in. And it'll give a leg up to an industry using archaic rules. Yeah, it, it's it becomes the next CBD. It, it's our, it becomes the next central banking structure, but on top of virtual. And we can also say that, do does anyone really think that the financial services industry regulations and frameworks that those are ideal today no, and they not at all for improvement not at all we need that we need to take that's why you can't just knee jerk say let's do something it has to be thoughtful and that's why we hate uh as as executives inside corporations things that came out of problems like that like socks or being oxley right when when all of those things came out uh, because of the collapse in 2008, it really slowed down. You probably like that stuff now, or do you like it? Do you like that, that uh, type of well, accountability? I will say, I will say that uh, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, not all of it, but much of it, uh, I like. Now, when I was an auditor for financial institutions, we did these things called uh, internal controls audits and, and risk management audits which was we understood how the systems all were supposed to work. And then we would compare that to how people actually comply with those during the year. And if people aren't complying with the rules, then the rules don't actually matter because you're circumventing them. Right. Sarbanes-Oxley basically institutionalized that. It, it, it said everybody, all these public companies have to comply with um, drafting rules of how you do segregation of duties and treasury risk management and all that. I think that was good. But often what happens is, and it's diabolical, uh, the regulations are developed or they're borrowed from another industry. And they're, they're, there's this noble cause to, to protect consumers with the shield of regulations. But what happens is uh, that shield turns into a spear and that mm. spear is held by the industry incumbents, and they use it to keep new entrants and, and new competitors at bay. And, and that's, that's so interesting. Think about this, William, think about this. Remember the RIAA and the MPA? Do you remember when peer-to-peer -peer started? I do. And, and remember how they just came down and squashed all those industries without looking at them as assets and learning to partner with them, which would have actually helped them out during that time. Yes. And, and that's exactly it. The incumbent had the power and the power destroyed. Yeah. And, and so it's almost inevitable in modern societies where uh, an industry lobbying group uh, goes to 
really not the politicians. They actually go to the staff members of the politicians. And, and this may come as a surprise to people, but all of those regulations are almost never drafted by the politicians or their staffers. They're drafted by the lobbying groups of the industry. Right, right. Then there's like a horse trade and the industry says, we understand we need to do this. But remember, their ultimate goal is always the same. How do we grandfather in all of us? And how do we keep new entrants out? And how do we maintain and even thrive under these new set of rules so that our profits stay the same or go up. So that literally is the blueprint. Mm. And this is why um, there's often debates and people say, well, you know, how can you be against regulation? And, and, and I don't like that, that question because what it does is it presupposes so much that's not true. It presupposes that the regulation is actually for the benefit of the consumer. It presupposes that that the regulation is the right policy prescription in order to reduce the incentive for these bad practices and bad behaviors. That is a gigantic leap people take when they when they when they hear regulation. So I always push back and say, no, 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 we're not going to talk about generic regulation. You need to put forth what you think is an idea that would be good for consumers and helpful for the industry players who are legitimate and honest. And then let's let's decide that. What I don't like hearing, and you hear it from members of Congress all the time, we're gonna create a bunch of new regulations. We're gonna regulate this industry. I mean, does anybody really think that the banking regulations have benefited consumers? No, not at all. But we talked about self-regulation, which the industry tried, but there's a bunch of douchebags that have taken advantage of the industry. How does the crypto space become self-regulating other than having the threat or the necessary government need to put regulation on top of it? So right now you could say it's mostly self-regulated, right? Right. And here's the thing that that I'm always trying to make uh, 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 a point around, which is typically Congress, the US Congress, it gets very concerned and, and wants to impose rules and regulations when uh, an industry problem could explode into a country or even international problem, as mm -hmm. happened during 2008. In 2008, the problem was not that investment banks and speculators lost money because that's that's how the rules work if you if you gamble you lose then you know it's on you the problem was the us government had backstopped all of these institutions and consumers with government guaranteed bank deposits and so as a result of that the collapse of the financial services sector actually affected every taxpayer and then the taxpayers in other countries mm. so once you once you uh, provide an insurance policy, once the people, the country provides an insurance policy to an industry, then you you must put in place regulations because we're on the hook if you do bad stuff. Right. That, there are no government guaranteed customer deposits in crypto. It There's is nothing. all on the individuals. So when people lose money in crypto, by the way, the crypto market cap in the last year has gone from 3 trillion to 1 trillion. Did you see 
millions of people become unemployed? Did you see no, no. homes? You no. see industries collapse? No. no. You know why? There wasn't a contagion. There wasn't a contagion because no government guarantees existed in that system. My concern with bringing banking regulations into crypto is the banks who love leverage, they love debt. They're then going to say, well, can we, can we put loans and debt leverage against this stuff? And their lobbyists may convince Congress to let them do that. You should not have any debt on any crypto assets. They're too volatile. It's actually Finance 101. Highly volatile assets should not have uh, any debt around them. It's just too risky. And unfortunately, uh, this happened. I wasn't even fully aware of it. But in, in 2021, prior to 2021, there was almost no leverage in crypto. And then in 2021, Wall Street came in and the venture capitalists came in and they love debt. They love juicing they their love leverage. And this is really what caused all the problems we're talking about at their core. It's leverage and then bad incentives by a few bad actors. Hmm. By the way, when you were talking about how VCs like to go find that golden child and then promote that golden child through all. It's the same thing Hollywood does. They go off and find that actor that is a no name and turn them into a big name so they can leverage things around that actor. It's, it's I mean, it's the formula that works. Might just be human nature. It is, it's across the board. So last time we, we did this together, it was pre-pandemic, right? 2019. Yeah. And I don't know what the fear and greed index was back then. You said it was at a low. Right now we're at 22. Yes, we down at historic low. And well, we we got down to an eight in the last six months. In in August 2019, it got down to five. Five was the lowest. Yeah, five's wow. the lowest on record, and uh, it did get down to eight, I think, in 2020. Uh, and so, uh, and even maybe in 2022, right, right after Terra Luna, it, it went right down after Terra Luna, the collapse of the stablecoin, and so. Uh, Look, the industry has taken a lot of body blows. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I would say at the, at the top of the ranking is a stable coin, which is supposed to be stable, uh, that collapsing, and FTX. FTX, it's probably bigger than Terra Luna, but it's hard to say. Uh, I think more money was lost with Terra Luna, at least directly lost. But um, uh, FTX is more of a shocker because uh it was really promoted as as this is the good exchange yeah so the secure exchange guy. yep and then and then let's put it things in context two months ago in september 2022 sam bankman was on the cover of forbes uh, heralded as the next warren buffett so like that <laughs> yeah but both terra luna NFTX had young people at the helm, um, and they were kind of cocky. I mean, yeah, for sure. Uh, now, there's lots of young people who are cocky who don't do shitty stuff, but uh, when it comes to finance and when it comes to financial institutions, and particularly with crypto, which behaves in ways that isn't always uh, what you would expect, uh, there is a need for a... Um, people to very closely monitor what's going on and 
there's a, a real strong need for people to not introduce leverage, right? So that if something bad happens, it's contained just among those assets that went down. And uh, I would like to hope that uh, we've, we've eliminated or we've greatly reduced people's incentives to use leverage, but, but uh, it'll probably come back. I don't think the industry, clearly the industry's not uh, fatally wounded. No. It is. Uh, it's this, limping. You've had all of these events happen in the last six months on the back of the uh, cryptocurrencies losing two trillion of, of value. So I think what that's done is it's shaken the confidence of the crypto industry. So does that mean at 22, out of fear and greed at 22, is that still a place where you would say good time to buy? Or well, historically, what I've said is whenever the fear and greed index has been below 20, right? Oh, got it. Okay. Good time to accumulate. When it's been below 10, it has been an excellent time to accumulate. Now, always when we talk about crypto, I say the same thing. If your time horizon is less than five years, I don't see any good reason to own this stuff. Got it. Right. Okay, that's the key right you know, there. Not, I'm not giving people financial advice, but I will say, Within a five-year time frame, you've got a pretty good chance of doing well. So Under five years, I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah, long term. What do you think about things like we, we don't talk about Ethereum? Um, we haven't seen um, Ethereum even be brought down or talked about, but Ethereum seems to, now, even though it's it's halved itself, um, it, it's got kind of a a different type of trajectory, doesn't it? Well, Ethereum hit a, it uh, was $85 in March, 2020. Uh -huh. In November, 2021, it was $4,800. Uh, we're at, we're at 1200 right now, 1250. Down 75%. Yeah. We're at 1250 now. Mm -hmm. It was holding tight at 2000 and then the uh, merge occurred. And for reasons that don't make sense to me, a lot of the Ethereum miners who no longer were going to be able to mine because it was the merge shifted the chain from a proof of work to a proof of stake. It was almost like um, a, a protest vote. They sold off a lot of their Ethereum and oh, it the price from 2000 to under a thousand. And then it went back up to like 17, 1800. And then, you know, the FTX debacle and slid down. I, I would say though, historically, and that's all we can go by with crypto. But historically, about six months after some major event on Ethereum, uh, the uh, the excitement around that event starts to get reflected in the token price, which would be roughly March-ish of 2023. So barring another major debacle of the FTX size, I'd say uh, I'm, I'm expecting around March, uh, FT, or, uh, Ethereum starts to recover and head back up. Got it. And then last thing, Elon Musk now, of course, uh, is talking about how he's going to transform Twitter. And he always talks about WeChat and how much he loves that what China can do with WeChat, do everything. And he's got that love affair still with Dogecoin, which just blows my mind, right? So I'm looking at Doge. Doge right now is about eight and a half cents. Mm -hmm. 
is that something we should be paying attention to? I mean, it's just one of those altcoins you got to almost like silver. You got to have a little silver reserve on the side, like gold. No, I don't think so. So, so Doge and Shiba and all those, those mm -hmm. were gimmicks, right? You're right, right. They are, they are, uh, they have no demonstrable value. They have no teams that are developing it. So they're, the, this is the version of a of a joke in crypto. <laughs> so if you were going to put funds there, fine, but understand it's pure speculation, right? Because there's not underlying economic forces. There's not underlying a technical innovation that's going to cause that to be more valuable. It's a meme token. And, and I don't think there's any problem with those existing, but just, you know, you want to put a few dollars in there for kicks. I think that's great, but I don't know of any way to evaluate the prospects of those tokens because they're strictly like crypto gimmicky jokes. So don't, don't risk a lot in those. All right. And then we talked about the halving that's not happening until 2024. March, 2024. So uh, this is worth the, the, the audience listening to. In March 2024, the happening occurs, right? And that's where the Bitcoin reward goes from six roughly to three roughly uh, per block um, validated. Mm -hmm. And historically, uh, within five to six months after a happening, uh, Bitcoin uh, leaves its doldrums phase and it starts to go up. And it can go up 400, 500, 600%. And then it'll settle down somewhere, you know. 300%, 400% above what it was prior to the happening. So, and most tokens are linked, they're correlated to the price of Bitcoin. So where goes Bitcoin, so goes a lot of other tokens. So you wanna pay attention to, to the Bitcoin happening. So six months after March, 2024 is what, September, right? Mm -hmm. So I think September, 2024, is when we will see another sustained rally, assuming, the patterns persist. Well, that's almost two years from now, right? And and a fair question is, what do we do from now till then? Well, well, we'll make sure we still do coin DMZs between now and then. We won't do one way two years agreed. from now. <laughs> and historically, Ken, at least for ten years, every year uh, during you know these slow periods, there would be some development in the blockchain space that would lead to a uh, like a sector within the blockchain, really generating a lot of interest, the tokens doing really well. And it was a way to kind of stay busy and and do well while you're waiting for the next big mega event, like the post run up of Bitcoin after it's happening. 2022, it's not over yet, but almost, is the first year in 10 years that I haven't seen some major uh, blockchain innovation that's driven some segment of the blockchain uh, space to do really, really well. Ethereum uh, 2.0 was supposed to do that. Say again? Ethereum 2.0 was supposed to do that. Uh, supposed no, to no, 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 no. Uh, so what I'm talking about is a brand new phenomenon. To give you an example, um, uh, you know, 2018, we had exchange issued tokens. 2017, we had mass market ICOs. Uh, 2016, oh, we really had the dawn of, of, uh, of, uh, 
of smart contracts through. Mm, okay, I get it. I get it. Uh, you know, 2020, you had DeFi. 2021, DeFi. you had NFTs and metaverse. You see what I'm saying? It's I that get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Movement. You didn't see that. And maybe it's percolating. I have a couple of things that could become bigger in 2022 or 2023, but it's uh, it's noteworthy to me because it's also the first year in 10 years that my partner and I, uh, we didn't have an innovation we were working on. We had basically been building stuff every year. And this was the first year where we were like, wow, we need to go back to the well. So uh, wow. by the way, guys, you may not know this, but William Quigley and his partner really are the guys that created the NFT. They didn't call it that. They had another name for it. These were skins, but we were the first to put skins, yep. which is, you know, a 200 billion annual business in the video game world uh, to, to put those on the blockchain. We built a custom blockchain called Wax that was specifically built just for skins and uh, video game virtual item trading. Uh, and I waited around from 2017 to 2021 for anybody to care. And then 2021 came and people finally cared and it was great. Uh, we got a lot of, I think, uh, overzealousness in that space. A lot of posers coming in, hawking stuff that I don't well, think. Let's let's talk about that in another episode. Uh, this is Coin DMZ episode thirty three. If you go listen to past episodes, check us out. Besides Brock Pierce, we had Brett King on. We had John McAfee join us, if you remember. Yeah. So you can go listen to some of the past archives. It's pretty fascinating. The speakers and guests we've had. Um, and I don't think John McAfee would ever need to eat his dick because it never got to that one million dollars, if you remember. He wouldn't need to eat his dick. Not at all. Five hundred thousand. It was five hundred thousand. There you go. But yeah, hey, we'll five hundred thousand. We'll, we'll try to get this out more often. We appreciate William Quigley. If you want to hunt him down, find him. Best way is to go on his Twitter feed, which is at what? Just William Quigley. William E. Quigley. Yeah, be careful. There's an artist with the same name who probably sells his paintings as NFTs. He's William Quigley. Yeah, but he sells them as NFTs, probably. He has sold NFTs, even on wax. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, right. And you can also see William on uh, places like CNBC and a lot of the news programs. So check him out there. Uh, I'm Ken. It's easy to find me. I'm right here. And I thank you, William Quigley and everyone else. Thanks a lot for hanging out with us over at Coin. DMZ. Bye, William. Bye-bye.